This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of O Ship. This week, I've got a really interesting guest in called David Segura. David is the CEO of Glassbox Media, uh, but he, you may know him as a very prolific entrepreneur investor if you've ever had a chance to meet him. He got his most notable start in the earlier part of his career as the founder of Giant Media, which was acquired by AdKnowledge, which actually used to be CEO'd by another buddy of mine called Ben Legg. But since then, you, you, you'd wonder if he ever had a free moment because he's either starting a new business or he's an angel investor in a new business. I don't have time and a long enough episode to list out all the things he's invested in, but some of the ones that caught my eye, eye which I thought were, were really cool. He's a partner at Dog Whisper Productions, which produces the Emmy-nominated TV series The Dog Whisper with uh, Caesar Milan, which is my mom's obsession. Uh, he's been an angel investor for everything from ad tech to media companies to blockchain, crypto businesses, to even a barbecue restaurant. But today we're going to focus on his kind of vision of what it means to build a media empire from the ground up. Now, David's certainly done this you know, in his own career, but he's also working in a world, the creator economy, where he's talking to individuals every single day who are building their own version of a media empire. So if you're wondering what the creator economy is, uh, it's a class of business that's effectively dis- defined by, I don't know, at least 50 million probably independent content creators, maybe more. I'm sure he'll clarify or correct me if I'm wrong. Could be anything from you know curators, community builders, social media influencers, podcasters, bloggers, video web series people like even me. And and then there's this whole world of software and finance tools that is kind of supporting that world. And so it's a, it's a really really interesting budding part of our economy. So. We're going to dig into that a lot deeper today, get David's take, and learn all about his super, super fascinating career. And with that, here we go with another week of O-Ship. David, welcome to the show. How are you? Fantastic. Thank you for having me. Yeah, again, I'm excited to chat with you. Hopefully I did, did you justice. Uh, I, I think we could do a whole spinoff show on just your angel investments, but I know we're going to get into it to a couple of them today. So I'd love to just kind of dive right in. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned uh, some of your, your kind of you know, earlier successes. I'd be interested to see kind of, you know, how, how you got your start in the industry. Yeah, definitely. That's from many, many years ago, but basically my transition into media in general Probably came after my first job, did a short stint in management consulting, thought it was a good foundation in retrospect, definitely not initially. And (laughs) that's just one of those things, culturally, it's not a great fit for me, but I think they'd agree as well. So long story short, I joined this company called Twistbox Entertainment. It's a venture-backed company out in Los Angeles that really had a lot of mobile content licenses, uh, a lot of gaming companies, a lot of other publications. And our job essentially was to license this out to a lot of, especially European carriers. So I'm talking about O2, Telefonica, a lot of other folks. And we had a great franchise, a really great business. But as happens in media and technology in general, the iPhone came out. 
So almost overnight, those very protected, what they called walled gardens became like obsolete. And we have to kind of fend for ourselves and kind of market our products under different types of names. In the end, the company was acquired, you know, for just under hundred million by some buyers, including Peter Goober and others. So I learned a lot, you know, it was your typical kind of rocket ship. It was a very junior level employee, but that kind of gave me a taste for not only media, but also startups and everything that goes with it. I love on that side note, you're not the first uh, first entrepreneur to join a ship who's had to cite uh, when the iPhone uh, basically blew up a, a business that they were uh, connected to. <laughs> so it seems like it's going to be a, an, an OSHIP, uh, OSHIP classic. And, and then can you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, Giant Media and how, how that, you know, what that kind of journey was like for you in terms of, you know, growing, starting it, growing it, you know, building your first, I guess that was, was that your first kind of It was, business? it was. And like, in talking to a lot of entrepreneurs, I think my story in some ways is very typical. You know, immediately after Twistbox, company got sold, learned a lot, had a great time, but I felt it was time to move on. So a VC buddy of mine, uh, Peter Lee, referred me to Dean Valentine at comedy.com. And, you know, another amazing experience where we were building a content company from the ground up. Not me, but Dean and other people on the team discovered a young Zach Galifianakis, Al Madrigal, and someone who's commonly mistaken for a relative but isn't, Tom Segura. <laughs> and we built a great business, but in the end, just to be candid, we got our butts kicked by both funnier guy and college humor among others. So t- I took a step back, kind of saw the writing on the wall and decided at some point it was time to transition and, you know, being kind of young and just overconfident, frankly, I thought I'd be ready to start my own business. Sure. So I did, I started experimenting with different types of, you know, projects I remember I called one of them Dorcia Media. That was a predecessor to Giant. And it only was around for three months, but it was essentially a Facebook business where I was starting and buying Facebook pages and then using that to promote content and videos. But overnight, Facebook changed their terms of service, which they're permitted to do, and, you know, just knocked the business out. So rather than giving up after I tasted blood and wanted to really get started, I decided to create Giant Media which was supposed to be a funny inside joke because it was just me and my co-founder, a guy named Matt <laughs> Costa. And yeah, we scaled up. You know, we had a very simple vision. We thought if we work with amazing brands and in some cases content creators to distribute their content, maybe even hopefully make it go viral, we could build a significant franchise. Yeah. So we tapped into publisher connections that I developed, obviously comedy.com, Funny or Die, and other people in the comedy vertical. In addition to also this, you know, Facebook, I had mixed feelings, obviously, on Facebook. But what Facebook was really trying to do is they wanted people to stop, like, kind of innovating in a way that they couldn't monetize. But they were perfectly happy to essentially let us do the same thing that I was doing before, provided we directed that to their Facebook apps business. So Mm. that is when the Eureka moment kind of happened. It was trial and error. And before we knew it, we grew a very significant business and just had... I mean, I know it's cliche, but literally the time of our lives is awesome. Uh, I was gonna say, I mean, it sounds like you're working on fun content too. So it's like you know, you're getting to do cool content. You're, you know, you're you're at a really fun part of, frankly, the evolution of Facebook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, you know, where you, know, I, you forget, like you know, Facebook's been through all these iterations over the years, and like the the rise of that app phase, and and when everything didn't have to be about you know, paid promotion of Facebook pages, and you could you know 
the, the term kind of go viral, you yeah. know, makes wince a little bit now, but I remember exactly what you were talking about and yeah. how that you really was like a strategy and you could, and you could build whole businesses around it. It's mm. awesome. People forget, but this is 2009. There were very, very smart people that were absolutely 100% certain that Facebook was a fad, would never be a large legitimate business. And they advised us not to bet the ranch on it. What they didn't realize is not that we knew more than them. This is we had no other choice. So we had to. And thankfully for us, it worked out. You mentioned, you know, the kind of couple small, like sub businesses that existed, you know, kind of even before giant media. If you had to guess, how many companies do you think you've you've kind of like almost like just started or played with an idea or like had you know kind of took a little bit away but never even bothered to talk like how many invisible Dave Segura companies are there out there that you don't even doesn't even show up on LinkedIn if you know what I mean? Oh yeah, I see what you mean. Um, I think a lot, and that's that's a really good narrative too. And the reason I want to bring that up is that I get a lot of questions, especially from either younger entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs who have maybe worked at companies their whole lives, but are very curious, should I do this? Should I co-found or launch a company? And really, once we really kind of get into it as to what's holding it back, it's that they don't want to like quit their job immediately or do this overnight. And then I remind them, once you get past the media narrative, almost nobody does that. Almost everybody starts as a side hustle or a fun labor of love. And then suddenly through hard work, but honestly, a lot of luck, it becomes a business and it becomes suddenly scalable. So I encourage people to do whatever is right for not only their financial situation, which is obvious, but, you know, frankly, you know, their, their mental state. I think it's a lot of pressure to do that, to go from stability to complete instability. So when I look back at the origin of giant, like in a lot of ways, it feels unique, but it's not. And I really think that's the best way to kind of scale and grow a business. It's slow and steady. And then only when you're ready, does it become, you know, fast opportunity. On a side note, I uh, I think I've probably got at least at least twenty companies that I was either like a minor partner in or wanted to get going and then just didn't come you know d- didn't you know kind of killed it off early when it's not there mm-hmm. and I think I think it's good advice you to, you know share it it's like you know, I think there's you know you called it overconfidence I think there's a there's a, a healthy mix in entrepreneurs of like a little bit of overconfidence a little bit of like you know. Uh, bliss and ignorance and kind of not even mm-hmm. contemplating you could fail. But I think mm-hmm. there's something extremely healthy about just kind of going for it as much as you can. I think sure. when it becomes unhealthy is when people don't call it quick enough. And so I'd say, you know, if, if you have an idea, great, iterate it, but don't, 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 you know, don't double down on ideas that aren't, aren't meant to make it. So, uh, you know, giant media, it was a uh, first company you ever sold. You get acquired by you know, a, another org. I'm, I'm intrigued as, as a serial entrepreneur. What did you, what did you learn from working and being acquired by another business? Like it was, you know, in terms of the first time your your baby is now inside someone else's else's world. You know, ups and downs. Obviously, one of the most significant ups was life changing event. You know, mm-hmm. um, definitely kind of gave me a lot of freedom, a lot of opportunities to travel and kind of uh, do things that I just really wasn't doing as I was kind of uh, building my company. But then the very significant thing that it did almost overnight, and this is obvious, is that I was no longer in control. In other words, I was still heavily consulted. They very much depended on me to grow their video business within this larger conglomerate. But, you know, literally things changed. And so I remember having a little bit of a hard time with that, if I'm, if I'm being honest. And, you know, I know that we both, we, we both uh, know uh, Ben, 
who's the CEO of Ad Knowledge, the company that bought us. And I think, I think he was incredibly kind of like patient, not just with me, but with other folks on the team that were maybe going through that transition. But I was well aware that it was a good opportunity, not just financially, but also from a career perspective to kind of learn from people that have done many things in their career. And at least as best I could, I tried to take advantage of that. And then the two years that I was there post-acquisition, soaked up as much information and experiences as I could. So uh, again, yeah, we'll have to give a shout out to, to Ben Legg and uh, make sure make sure he takes a peek at this. So you were out there building this, you know, building this media business of your own, which you, you know, very very lucky. You had this life changing event, and you had the next exit. If you think about building a media business today, let's say you know t- ten plus years later, uh, whether you know, I guess even through your own eyes or, or through the eyes of you know, advice you might give to other leaders or entrepreneurs out there, you know, what's, what's the difference? How, what's the biggest change in building a media business then versus being, building a media business now? I think the biggest thing, and it's kind of shocking, and there's just ways to innovate around that, is, you know, the democratization of content and opportunity, really. Like, one of the things that I'm kind of blown away now with our current business is just that we're working with all these amazing, let's say, creators and podcasters in our specific example, but they're doing incredible world-class content from their living room, their bedroom. And that would have been unthinkable, you know, back in 2014 when we sold Giant Media. You just wouldn't have believed that quality content that literally millions of people would want to consume could be done so efficiently. And yet I'm recognizing that things like authenticity, kind of more personalized stories, that's really what not only consumers want in the US, but frankly elsewhere as well. So for that reason, I think it's it's really intriguing. Mm. You know, it's, we've had chats on on our ship before where uh, we talk about uh, you know how being an entrepreneur is so different today from basically how it was you know you know ten or fifteen or even twenty years ago. You know, I do a lot of things in kind of e commerce space and things like that, and the types of investment that you would have had to build some of the businesses that you can now basically start on a weekend spend literally $20 sometimes to basically, you know, or even free, completely free to get access to tools that uh, uh, 10, 20 or 10, 15 or 20 years ago would have been completely out of the range for everyday people. And I think it's easy to forget that this has, this is exactly what's happened for content creators. You know, the ability for a person to go out and literally produce a HD or even 4K quality level production, share it not just on one platform, but multiple platforms in real time. And then this whole world of all these tools that have popped up that basically lets one person or one or two people feel like what could have been, would have been literally a 20 person team 10 mm-hmm. or 15 years ago, I think is, is easy, um, is easy to forget. And it's cheap. You know, the, the only limited, the only limit is, uh, is, is talent based talent and time. And so uh, when, when you think about uh, this, I'm going to jump a little bit more into this kind of like content creator world for a minute. You know, what are the key things that you think a typical content creator is, is thinking about when they're trying to you know, build their own business, um, you know, starting as a, a version of one versus being a, uh, you know, a guy who maybe goes into it with the mindset that maybe you have historically um, as a traditional kind of media background person? Yeah, I'll say this, you know, whether you're, you know, someone that is an influencer creating one-off pieces of bytes, if you will, platforms like TikTok and others, or you're a dedicated, you know, podcast, you know, host, if you will, either yourself or with a co-host or the producer or what have you, in, in doing it more in an episodic fashion, 
what they all have in common, and there's exceptions, obviously, but what most of them have in common is that they started out as very passionate hobbyists. And then only over time, kind of very similar to my own journey many, many years ago, did it suddenly become a business? Did they suddenly realize there's actually a huge market for this? I like doing it and it's actually working. And I guess part of the reason I identify so much with creators is that, unfortunately, very sadly, I'm not a true creator. You know, I would love to be, but I'm not that creative guy. But I have appreciation for their skill set. I think, you know, our company Glassbox can obviously help them. But the one piece of advice I give to anyone out there that's thinking about this, they always ask, is what I'm really passionate about relevant? Is there a market for this? Will people listen to it? And the short answer is probably. It's not easy to grow a significant audience. I'll be candid and say it's not easy to make it like a living. But at the same time, what all these folks have in common is they had a very quirky, unique, personalized way of doing something, whether it was examining crime cases, hence the true crime genre, or literally one of our recent signees, he's a philosopher. He loves stoicism. He can quote Marcus Aurelius like in almost every instance and try to apply it. He decided that he did not have the patience to do two-hour podcasts, which is pretty common in this industry, but he thought he could very easily do anywhere from seven to 10 minutes, at least twice a week. So that's what he did. And now his podcast, you know, we signed him just recently, uh, Tanner Campbell. Uh, we thought we were onboarding a podcast with around a quarter million listeners per month. And now it looks like he's on pace to trend towards a million, literally. So That's amazing. Yeah, you, you, you referenced a couple of times that you'd signed them. I want to make sure our audience understands. Um, tell us a little bit about your new business, uh, Glassbox Media. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's very much a second act. You know, Giant Media was sold many years ago, 2014. Kind of transitioned out of that in 2016. You know, I'll, I'll circle back. But basically during this time in the wilderness, if you want to call it that, I've been mm-hmm. doing a lot of investing, a lot of traveling, you know, 70 companies and counting. But I knew in my heart eventually. Sorry, did you just say 70? 70 yeah. companies? Yeah, Man, I thought you were at 40. Okay, we're going back to that subject. That's amazing. <laughs> but basically what happened to me is the final catalyst was knowing that eventually I needed to be back in an operating role. The final catalyst was the pandemic. So like a lot of folks, I was kind of like grounded at home, getting very bored, thinking about what I wanted to do simplistically like with my life. And I decided, obviously, I want to go back to my roots. I'm a media nerd, always will be. So what should we do in media? Talk to some of the folks that I work with at Giant. We first decided to get the band back together. But realistically, like, you know, the, the, the honest to God truth is that we didn't know what we were going to do. But by 20, you know, 21, basically last year, we finally decided podcast. Then through a process of like iteration and trial and error, by the half year mark or right around there, we recognize that, all right, here's a space we're going to be. We don't want to be an ad network with too many of them. We ourselves, unfortunately, aren't great producers. So we're not going to be able to probably ideate and then build something from scratch on a show level. So what else could we do? On a personal level, I'm really inspired by the music industry. Like personal heroes include people like David, David Geffen or Richard Branson. And so I said, you know what? Our North Star is going to be Warner Music. It's going to be those guys, Mo Austin, all those people. And we're going to skate essentially to where the puck's going. We know we can't build a show very easily from scratch. Okay, that means we won't get the majority of the upside, whatever. Let's go out and engage star creators that are already doing well, that have already built a great business, but essentially offer them not only amazing financial terms, but limit some of their downside by making a guarantee. 
And then in exchange for that, we'll get exclusivity. We'll host all their content catalog in our own platform and own environment. And then wherever possible, the other thing that we do that makes us very different is just like a record company, we invest in them. And we do that simplistically so that we get permanent economics. We become a minority owner, if you will, in their IP. And we're also well aware that podcasting is just getting started. We personally believe that eventually this will be an incredible source of other types of content, TV show adaptations, books, live events. And it's just a matter of time, especially knowing what we know about media. So we're pumped. We couldn't be more enthusiastic. That's awesome. By the way, you know, for, for those of you who are listening to the show on the podcast, you won't appreciate this unless you watch the video show. But, you know, Damon, who's not not been operating business, been primarily investing, he's actually 87 years old and he looks like he's like 35. I'm, I'm 22 and I look like I'm 58 because I've been deep in the trenches. Definitely kidding, but this is, you know, you're back. Welcome back to the trenches, David. I, I know you're going to knock it out of the park, but I, I love, I love the North Star that you kind of, you know, reference. I love how you're thinking about this. And it's, it's really, really, really exciting. I want to jump back into, uh, to some of these trends. I, we're we're going to go back to the creator economy. I want to jump back to the angel investor uh, side of things because I think that's really fascinating. So you're clearly a very prolific angel investor. Is this, uh, is it a passion? Is it an obsession? Is it just great, great business sense? Like what, what, what's made you such an active investor? I'll say this, pretty sure the first two things you mentioned are accurate. The last one, I hope. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> so I do warn people that, like I, I do tell them the truth. Like I tell them that I am in the startup industry, both as an investor and an operator, because I have to, I'm passionate about it. I love it. Um, I've tried before and I have some amazing friends, either in jobs like banking or consulting that just, you know, have the mind for it and, and the stability, if you will, to continue doing that for a long time. But I know my, I myself don't. So I, at first, looking back in it, in retrospect, probably just got so into investing because I wanted to live like, you know, vicariously through other founders. I can feel that. You know, and it is, it's, it's an amazing thing. Like I don't overstep either. In other words, I'm founder friendly. I know it's their baby, their vision, it's personal, but you know how it is. Early on, there's a lot of problems. There's a lot of questions. Yeah. People are pretty forthcoming with like, what do you think? And they're not yeah. literally asking you, like, tell me what to do, but they are trying to go to trusted sources and, you know, get some feedback. And that's the kind of stuff that I actually like. It sounds a little weird, almost sadomasochist, but I like problems. I think that too many entrepreneurs get scared and think that to, to be avoided, but problems are opportunities. Um, there's no upside without tremendous risk. So that's the most exciting part of the company to me, pre-seed and seed stage. And that's what I've done. And, you know, thankfully over the years, I've worked with some amazing people, but the one humbling lesson I've learned as an investor is that nobody can tell if a company eventually breaks out and does awesome, like Rev Collaborative, you know, they recently went public, really interesting eco goods business that, you know, has been around for a long time and is now public. And they went public via Richard Branson and Virgin and the SPAC. But early on, no one could have known that. Stewart and the rest of the founders were uber confident, but so is every other business I've ever invested in. So it's just an incredible journey. And there's a lot of like, you know, twists and turns and the people that don't give up and that are very kind of perseverant are typically the ones that succeed. And, you know, amazing, amazing experiences for me and, and obviously for a lot of other investors. 
is, is that the biggest thing you've learned as an entrepreneur, kind of turned investor, this this concept of not being able to predict it? Or do you think there's, is there other things that has really impacted you as, as an entrepreneur turned investor? I'll put it this way. Like, I consider myself to be a lifelong learner, a very naturally curious person. And hence, that's how I get so, like, you know, broadened out in all these different businesses and all these different industries. But in some ways, also, to some extent, a slow learner, at least, like, you know, signals. It takes me a long time to pick up on that. So I try things my way, but over time, I'm, you know, humble enough to switch up. So early on, I did what everybody does, I think. I just invested in very close friends and people that I knew really well, wasn't really that interested in referrals. Mm-hmm. I had some other folks that maybe had more experience than me, encouraged me to also become an LP in different venture funds. And they said that one, I'd learn a lot. And then two, there were oftentimes these amazing opportunities to like, let's say double dip and invest mm-hmm. directly in the series A or series B. And of course, me thinking in my mid twenties, I was like, I don't need that. And I've come to realize that actually, like, um, you know, that was a, a tremendous thing. So now that I've kind of varied my strategies, I get all sorts of deal flow, not just from my close friends, but from people that I've made as acquaintances and that respect maybe my ability to add some value in some mm-hmm. specific area. So pretty cool. Was it now, now that you're kind of uh, back in the driver's seat and uh, as a kind of primary entrepreneur. As being an investor, that what you've done as an investor and other people and the way you've approached probably guiding people now for a significant number of years, you, has that shaped you as a new entrepreneur or, or a returning entrepreneur? If you're ever yeah. such a, you know what I mean? Like in, in your new role, like how's that, how's that changed you? It has. I mean, at least for me, it wasn't obvious that it would, but I, I definitely feel it every day now. In other words, it's going to sound a little bit maybe mildly psychotic, but I'll say this. I are in a safe space, David. You go. You go, buddy. We're a weird bunch of weirdos around here. Well, I'm not a reason transparent for better or worse. Can't help it. So happy to do it. So I'll just say this. Obviously, I share notes and open thoughts with my team, especially my co-founder and my COO. But nonetheless, I kind of feel like in some cases, at least having been here before, having invested in so many businesses and just knowing how investors think, I almost have like a dialogue in my own head about like, all right, obviously in a pre-seed, seed-stage company, there is no board at this point. There is no kind of like hands-on, you know, oversight. But what if there was? And so in that dialogue, I'll kind of question my own decisions and think about how I position it and why I'm doing it and kind of run through that process almost with this like imaginary investor that, you know, basically only exists in my head. And I think it's made me a better entrepreneur, though, because one, it makes me more determined to like not just succeed for myself and even our team, but for the people that I've actually put in money to this business. Mm. And then beyond that, too, I also think that a lot of investors and I know sometimes in the general market, if you will, there's like love and hate for investors. You know, Mm. there's some good things and some bad things and some truths and some misconceptions. But I do think one thing that, that investors bring to the table that is very clarifying and helpful is that they have this really big abstract point of view and they want businesses that in theory can make billion dollar exits. And if not, that's still extremely large numbers. Mm-hmm. So when you're thinking in that way, you have to really kind of focus. It basically makes you do things that are like very scalable. It makes mm-hmm. you do things that are repeatable. And as a consequence of that, I think it's a very good clarifier that a lot of other businesses don't have to worry about, but I'm actually happy to have that burden, that challenge, because this time around, I want, you know, just being candid, not even for financial reasons, but for goal-driven reasons to have like a much, much bigger outcome than, you know, I did when I was much younger. Yeah. What's interesting about, uh, 
you know, your, the perspective there. I think one side of that was like a classic investors you know, kind of talking about the perspective and the breadth that they have there. Another part of that, what I thought was cool, was you, you kind of recognizing that, and I, I hate to say it, but like almost like with, with age, or you call it experience, whatever you want to call it, but there's like this higher degree of empathy you have because I think through accumulated experiences, you you start to kind of maybe think through these different perspectives of the you know these different lenses you've had in life that you didn't have when you were you know early twenty something you know entrepreneur. Sure. So I'm going to shift shift gears a little bit. Uh, you knew this knew this moment would come at some point, but I have to ask you. Uh, for an O-Ship story. So those of you who are tuning into O-Ship show for the first time, uh, one of the things we really love to ask our guests about is a moment in their in their life or career where you know things didn't go exactly as planned and how they dealt with that. And sometimes this could be something that shaped them you know, in the way that they do business. Sometimes this maybe shaped them as a, as a person. Sometimes maybe it didn't do any of those things, but it was, uh, you know, not very funny at the time, but very funny, you know, years later. But I think the main thing is we want people to understand like that the path to success is, is very rarely a straight line. And so I really relish these opportunities. You know, I, the, ta- the floor is yours, but it could be anything from something from your own personal career or life, or, or it could be something you've seen other people do in the creator economy, what, whatever inspires you, David, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to hear it. Oh yeah. I got so many stories, so I'll try to keep it like, I want one for every angel investment. (laughs) Yeah, seriously, probably. I'll I'll just say this: like, time has an interesting way of, like, you know, changing how 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 things feel. But many years ago, I might have been 2011, 2012. Giant Media was kind of scaling up at that point. We were starting to work with some very serious brands, and I remember we were doing a major campaign with Nissan. And you know, part of our activation was we were trying to make videos go viral. These are longer form videos. This being the internet, longer form means usually a minute to two minutes long. And you know, we were distributing them. As part of our strategy, we had a really unique differentiator where we would basically have folks that had training in PR, not just engage the Facebook apps and like, you know, the big publications like Pop Sugars of the World, but they would also go to these similar outlets and be like, we're not gonna actually pay you per video view, but this is a good story in of its own please cover this Nissan Versa launch. It's amazing. And, you know, we would do that sometimes with freelancers and it was great. One time that we made a mistake and that's how, that's the thing, you know, you never know the biggest risk you're taking and that's, that's why it's risky. We had a freelancer who was a good young person, certainly ethical, nothing bad there, but he happened to work at AOL and specifically on the automotive team. Now we did looking back in it, I do remember because we double confirmed it later with our team. We clarified, hey, you know, we're going to pay you for this campaign, a fixed amount. We know you're in PR, you can't necessarily guarantee anything, but leveraging all the relationships you have, go out there and seed this. Get people to pick it up because the clients really care about earned media. And this person, we had worked with them before, done great jobs, said no problem. But one of the things that we clarified, but obviously not enough, is all right, though, to avoid, you know, any sort of conflict of interest, AOL's out. So car blog, all that, that's out. And he's like, yeah, no problem. What ended up happening is that I think he thought he was doing us a solid. He himself did not induce anyone to do it, didn't force anyone. He didn't put it up himself. But he pitched his friend, you know, who was like the associate editor. And the guy was like, yeah, I'll cover this for you. Why not? Somehow that got twisted. I remember Gawker's, um, you know, car blog, I think it was Jalopnik at the time. Yeah, yeah, I used to to read that. 
Yeah, I mean, everybody did. So they called it payola. And, you know, Nissan understood the situation, but the truth is sometimes different from the optics. So they were kind of irate. But I remember in that moment just feeling so deflated and overwhelmed. Uh, obviously, my team was depending on me as a CEO, but I decided that I couldn't run from this. I had literally just read some like memoir, I think, from Madeline Albright. And I think she used the phrase like, you know, you need to run to the fire. And so while it's a little dramatic, she's talking about war and diplomacy. I'm talking about Internet videos. <laughs> I was scared. It was overwhelming for me. It would have been a picnic for her and other people. But I decided I am going to do this. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to confront this and explain how we're going to manage it. So we did it. You know, we worked with the team in L.A. and, and Nissan and remotely with the North American Nissan team in Nashville, Tennessee, and, and we fixed it. And then a year later or so after the business got better and believe it or not with them and a whole bunch of other clients, I just asked them, it was over drinks. I thought, what the hell, I'm just going to go for it. And I just said, hey, you guys were pretty pissed off. And at the end of the day, that's on us. Why didn't you just like pause the campaign? Because realistically, that was our biggest fear that you were going to pause this quarter million dollar campaign, which meant everything to us at the time. And then he looked at me, he's like, you know what, David, like this guy, Brandon, he's like, I was mad. But the fact that you guys called immediately and had a plan, I don't know. I gave you guys less than a 50% chance of pulling it off, but I figured <laughs> you guys were taking accountability and you got us into this in the first place, you would be most likely to get us out. And I'm glad we bet on you guys. So that just like, you know, confirmed, okay. you know, and now that I'm older, more experienced, whatever, I just recognize that you always have to tackle a problem. It doesn't get better with time. And now I have enough humility to recognize I don't control the outcomes, but I control the inputs in the process. And if yeah. you maximize those things, good things will happen more often than bad. But that was my first real kind of business going through the crucible. And I've just tried to replicate that kind of feeling and process. That's, awesome, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great story. And I think uh, anytime people talk about integrity and what they learn from it, I think, and owning something, I, I respect it. I think that's, that's first class. Mm -hmm. So I want to jump back with the, some of the time we've got left. Uh, and talk a little bit more about the creator economy because I know it's such uh, an area of passion for you. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to leave it a little open-ended, but there's a couple of things I, I'd like to do to kind of like set, set the tone a little bit. What do you think are the advantages that creators have over kind of more traditional publishers? Well, the one thing is that it's more efficient and lean. In other words, you can basically start a media company in a very simple fashion you get some equipment, you know, some very basic tools of the trade. And then you can go from there, just kind of get started trial and error and get it going. When I look back at, you know, traditional, more mainstream media companies, even internet ones, which are obviously much more lean compared to Time Warner or Disney's of the world, they're still very expensive. Looking back and just give you an example, as an investor, you know, I was still a giant post acquisition but I basically bought a 49% stake in this like very interesting defense-oriented publication called yeah. War is Boring. Wait, what was it called? War is Boring. War is Boring, okay, cool. It still exists, but the backstory there is that it had been spun off from Evan Williams Medium, you know, that huge media organization that, and he himself is one of the co-founders of Twitter. They changed strategies and they decided they didn't want to have any in-house publications because maybe that was competitive with like creators writing for them. Mm -hmm. So kind of knowing that, you know, we did our best to kind of continue to pay the staff, even staff up. 
but we have some serious, you know, doubts about our viability as a going concern. I'll put it that way. And then literally five months later, mostly through the founder's hard work, we were able to entice a private equity company based in Florida to acquire it as part of a roll-up they were doing of like the defense and services industry for, you know, uh, folks in that space. And that was a great outcome. But I can tell you while we didn't necessarily break the bank operating that company, there was just so much more to do in like a traditional company versus this creators that are overnight kind of starting almost as like contractors. And then in some cases going from hobbyists to full-fledged media businesses that have major brand sponsorship that have a freemium model or maybe a portion of their content's available to only those that pay. And a lot of other, I think, future opportunities, whether it's something really big like a TV show adaptation or a book or something more minor but very lucrative. Mm-hmm. A, show, a live show where people will literally pay the same way you do a musician to watch mm-hmm. do a special episode at a local theater. It's just mind-blowing to see how quickly people, essentially with just some, some support, are able to start almost one man and, or one woman uh, media organizations. It's amazing. Yeah, it's you know you've got the you've got the advantage of the speed, the you know, lower cost of operation, the passion factors there. I think I'd imagine that that that, that transition to monetization is is probably where people you know probably struggle. And I actually, I'm assuming that's one of the areas where Glassbox obviously is, is is really helpful. When you flip that and you start looking at the traditional uh, media publishers who have all this experience in monetization and operationalizing this and all these industry relationships and so on. What would you say like their, their kind of biggest challenges are now when trying to compete with this creator economy? Is it, yeah, I'd love to get your angle on that. It just, you know, you have to be flexible. It's like you, like, like you mentioned before, you know, there's a fine line between like being persistent and being stubborn and you have to just kind of have a thesis, obviously test it. But after some iteration, if you have to evolve or even completely flip, you just have to. So as an example, with Glassbox, we knew we wanted to work together. That was first and foremost. We knew it was going to be involved in media. And then eventually we realized podcasting was going to be our, our play. But we didn't originally have this vision of being like a Warner Music, if you will, for the, for the stars. We essentially thought, just like a lot of companies, we'd be some combination of an ad network and a company that maybe worked with stars, but also would do their own IP and create their own shows. But over time, after iteration and testing, we kind of recognized that our best model was kind of leveraging all of the amazing brand context we built over the years, our understanding of technology to automate, you know, ad reads so that as soon as like, let's say a Heineken campaign is done, in theory, should we want to, we can then use technology to serve a Budweiser read. And we would basically change the way people were doing it, not allow them, if you will, to bake their ads in to the catalog and selling them. And there's a lot of different things that we could do. But I guess when I think about some of my, and I mean this respectfully, but some of my contemporaries that maybe kind of came up with me in the ad tech industry, a lot of them are just dead set on kind of imposing what we knew to be best practices on this new kind of era of creators. And what I found is that whether a person is like Gen Z or a person is like, you know, just uh, millennial or older, there's just a new way of doing things. And you have to have enough, like, not only humility, but flexibility to recognize that a lot of what you know is going to be relevant, but a lot of it just needs to go or radically evolve. And I kind of feel like that's part of the reason we've been able to grow so quickly with the modest amount of investment that we've walked into this knowing we have to change and we've been open to that. 
Yeah, it's funny that the kind of growth of, of uh, you know, you refer to it as, as, somewhat, as somewhat new. I think, yeah, it's, it obviously has been, been around uh, for a while, but, but I do think that the massive surge and increase of interest that's happened over the last couple of years is new. And, and I would argue that when something is, popularity is rising this quickly, it, that it's evolving even faster than things seem to evolve online in general. Uh, so as a kind of a final thought from you, for any of the audience who may be involved in the space or thinking about getting involved in the space, what do you think are the biggest trends that people should be watching for in terms of you know the, the latest evolutions in the in the kind of podcast industry? You know, obviously this is just one man's opinion, but I get asked this in different types of lights. Sometimes people looking to get into the space. Sometimes investors just doing you know diligence and frankly challenging uh, me and my team. And you know, we literally got asked by one uh, VC. And I respect the question, but I kind of chuckled some. He didn't literally say this, but it was pretty much like an end of history comment. Is there yeah. any innovation left in podcasting? And I'm like, mm, yes, that's why we're here. But <laughs> one comment, you know, one comment and one truth though, I definitely want to like, you know, confirm, at least in my opinion, is that distribution in some ways has been decided. I don't know who's going to win. You know, Sirius is out there. Um, Spotify, certainly Apple, even Amazon it'd be very difficult for someone to basically take those guys on and say, you know what, I'm going to have a service that's going to have more users or subscribers than those guys. Good luck, but probably not. Then (laughs) there's another space, you know, and this is like a lot of like the developers that were very interested in audio jumped in immediately to build either analytic services, companies like Chartable, PodSites, or, you know, alternatively other types of tools. There's still room for that. There always will be. There's a lot of tuck-in acquisitions anywhere from five to 30 million. It's a saturated space, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I think right now what people should be thinking about, and there's a lot of ways to tackle it, is essentially the content space. In other words, a big problem right now in the industry, and like people like Spotify will confirm this for you, is that you know the long tail is ultimately what's driving the space. Radio is a $40 billion industry, $40 billion a year industry in the US alone, and it's atrophying over time to podcasting. So nobody questions that podcasting will continue to grow depending on what source you cite between 30 to 50% year over year for a long time. Money is going to be made there. But what Spotify and all these companies are realizing is that while they want to welcome all the hobbyists of the world from Boise, Idaho to Moscow, they recognize that brands, you know, for better, for worse, the capital ones, the Hondas of the world, they want premium brand safe content. Now it'll still be authentic, maybe grittier than traditional media, but nonetheless, that's how brands are. They're like, oh, that long tail stuff. Let's we'll go to the, the head. Mm-hmm. That's very challenging for organizations like Spotify and others. So companies like Glassbox, and I think some of the companies that are, you know, maybe competitive or that'll emerge, recognize this. And that's why we think bundling kind of the best of the best is the right way to actually build meaningful scale and basically help solve problems for people like Spotify and others whose services we're frankly building on and whose user we reach, even though, you know, they're also subscribers of, you know, Spotify or Apple or what have you. So it's a really interesting time. And I just argue that people should be really thinking about all the ways to get into the content game and hopefully scalable and in capital efficient manners. That was super interesting. I, uh, so I love, I love ending a no ship on a great, uh, insightful thought that, uh, will leave people wondering. And I think, uh, you know, if people want to dig into this more with you, wh- where should they be looking you up? What, you know, what, uh, what's the best way for people to, you know, 
follow up and connect with you post the show. Yeah, definitely. You know, apart from my email, uh, my social handles that I use most frequently, and I have several, certainly LinkedIn, you know, you can just add me directly and I will, I do comb my inbox a lot. So I'll reply there. Additionally to I'm active for better or worse on Instagram. So the said 10 DSCG one zero is my handle on Instagram and other social media handles. And I'm certainly happy to connect there. And, you know, whether you want to talk to me or, you know, the company Glassbox, happy to facilitate that. I really appreciate that. And I just want to thank you again for uh, joining us today. I really enjoyed the chat. I hope we get a chance to meet in person one day. I'd love to grab dinner or drinks with you sometime. I think you, you make for great company. And I feel like I just barely scratched the surface on uh, how many interesting stories you probably have to share. Uh, for, for those of you who have been uh, watching live or you're listening in uh, post-show on any of our streaming platforms, whether it's YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, uh, or Apple Podcasts, you know, Spotify, any place you're tuning in, Thank you, thank you, thank you for watching and listening to Earthship. I really appreciate the support. The best thing you can do to support the show is give us a like, share it on your social networks, tell your friends. This is just something that we do for passion and for pleasure. And uh, we want to keep bringing this content to you every single week. And uh, we appreciate you spreading the word and being a subscriber to Earthship. Uh, David, thank you again for your time. And we'll see all of you next week on Earthship. The O Ship Show is brought to you by Chameleon Collective, where we lead, scale, and adapt to build and grow great companies. You can learn more at chameleoncollective.com. Freddie will see you next time when we will once again be raising the sails for the O Ship Show.